Welcome back to Streamageddon, the TV and streaming podcast that is just having a summer of fun. And it's the last summer ever for streaming and television, apparently. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, counting down the days until there's no more entertainment with Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? I'm doing well. I share your apocalyptic fears, uh, though it seems like it might not be just the entertainment industry. Uh, with these temperatures, perhaps the whole planet is going down with us. That's just fine. You know what? I'm ready to strike from existence next. And of course, we will bring you the latest on the SAG-AFTRA and Writers Guild of America strikes and what they mean for the future of TV and streaming. And you know what? Even the movies will toss that in. Uh, But it's not all doom and gloom because uh, last episode in our emergency pod, we each shared a show with each other that we were both enjoying and that the other probably hadn't seen. And then we thought, whoa, What if we watched the other show? And that means it's our first ever Summer Show Swap. I'm going to tell you my feelings about the premiere of The Lincoln Lawyer, a hit Netflix show in its second season. I've never seen it, so uh, Diane challenged me to watch the pilot. And I challenged Diane to step outside her own comfort zone and watch an episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds featuring uh, perhaps my favorite version of Spock ever, Hunky Ethan Peck Spock. He's good. He's He's a good Spock. (gasps) Maybe not meeting my level of enthusiasm about Ethan Peck as Spock, but I understand different strokes for different folks. And you, our listener folks, you might enjoy these shows too. This is a lighthearted, spoiler-light episode, so no fears, no concerns, except, of course, about the state of the world, which brings us, as always, to some follow-up. And of course, we begin with follow-up on our favorite segment, What's That, Bob? Because last week, we looked at the latest statements from Disney CEO Bob Iger and took a moment to go, What's that, Bob? Uh, Diane, do do you think Bob Iger is really serious about selling Disney's TV assets? Uh, He he may be. I think he's serious about this ESPN partnership. Mm, And that's where our follow-up brings us, because uh, Bob Iger said he really wants to find a strategic partner for ESPN. uh, And one of the potential strategic partners floated, uh, you know, in the chattering class, would be Comcast, owner of NBC Universal, owner of NBC Sports, a network interested in sports. But I mentioned last week that that didn't make a lot of sense to me, because why would you buy one sports network when you already got one? And uh, Disney's, uh, I'm sorry, Comcast CEO Brian Roberts uh, seems to agree that it makes zero sense whatsoever, and said as much in Comcast's recent earning call. Uh, Wow, what a shocker. Yeah, it seems like uh, the economics of being a minority partner in a cable channel are uh, not the best right now. And uh, it seems like uh, Mike Cavanaugh and Brian Roberts at Comcast are reading the writing on the wall there and saying, uh, no thanks on this partnership. Yeah, the quote from Comcast President Mike Cavanaugh was, I would just say that's very improbable uh, and mentioned, quote, tremendous issues around such an idea. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's not happening. But what might be happening, and is perhaps a more likely scenario, is uh, we learned on CNBC that Bob Iger and company have been talking to the sports leagues themselves, saying, hey, what have you got in on the action? It makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Apparently, they've reached out to the MLB, the NBA. I mean, we've known for a while that uh, these leagues will need to figure out some new way uh, to broadcast their shows. Um, And this seems like a possibility to me. I I think it makes potential sense. I don't know if they'd want to do this with a Disney partnership or perhaps be the direct source of the content. Yeah, I I wonder for the leagues, they already make money selling the rights to air these sports to ESPN. So how do you sweeten the deal? ESPN is already paying the leagues. So how do you make it more valuable for them, giving them obviously a cut of ownership? But honestly, why would they want a cut of ownership when they could own it? Right. And as we talked about last week, while ESPN is profitable, we know when we look at uh, growth 
moving forward, it's going to be less profitable every year. Yeah. Yeah. And so why would you want to get in on such a distressed asset is the question. Though on the flip side, you know, uh, we don't talk about sports as much, but uh, the regional sports networks that have, you know, broadcast the like, let's say B tier, C tier games for years and years and years on cable all across the country. All of those regional sports networks are essentially in meltdown because their business makes even less financial sense than ESPN's at this point. And so there is some incentive or, you know, some, uh, you know, a stick. Uh, ESPN's offering a carrot, get in on the deal with us. But there is a stick for the, the leagues as well, which is that their existing relationships with the regional sports networks are falling apart. And in some cases, the leagues are bailing out RSNs in order to just have the the games air on something. Right. This does seem like a moment where there's an opportunity for a potential disruption in how people watch sports. Like, I I think the way that people watch your average baseball game uh, will be very different or like their local team's baseball game will be very different over the next few years. Yeah, I think we're going to see even more and more change there with the involvement of streaming, because while uh, many of the streaming services have had to pause production on uh, shows and movies, you don't have to pause production on sports during a SAG-AFTRA strike. And so it might be time to redirect some of that uh, hard-earned capital into a new line of business, uh, which does not give me any joy because I don't care about sports. Watching sometimes. Oh, sometimes. A massive endorsement. Our new senior sports correspondent, Diane Nora. She'll bring you all the sports news that I... Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) Beautiful. But you know, that's not the only Disney story I wanted to touch on. Uh, And this, we can just kind of mm, dash into the movies for a second. uh, Because two things happened this past weekend that, that my wild mind connected. One of them, of course, is the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Uh, Diane, have you had a chance to see Barb and or Heimer yet? Yes, I, I opted for an Oppen Harby because Ooh. I wanted to to have, you know, Oppenheimer for my meal and and Barbie as a dessert. And I would recommend that pairing. I like that order. I, I would go Oppen Arby myself. <laughs> that almost sounds like an Arby sandwich, which there was enough cross promotional tie in for Barbie that why not an Oppen Army uh, now it sounds like an army hammer flavored <laughs> sandwich which also kind of ties in with his shtick anyway uh i have not had a chance to see either of them yet very hard to get tickets to them at the big theaters in new york right now i i just heard today barbie had a 26 million dollar monday this week monday Ooh, it's amazing what a time what a time to be making Original IP? Is it original-ish? Well, well, that, yeah. that brings me to the other thought that went through my head this past <laughs> weekend related to our good friends at Disney. Uh, it was the end of the season for Marvel's Secret Invasion, a show that absolutely no one is watching. Uh, are you watching it, Diane? I'm not. I have to say <laughs> um, my partner is watching, so I've seen maybe two or three minutes of it while walking through the room. And every time that it's on, I walk by, I'm like, oh, yeah, how is this? And he's like, I don't know why I'm watching. It's so bad. Yeah. So I have been skimming the reviews and recaps, and I can easily say this is the worst reviewed Marvel series yet. Just I have not seen a positive word about it anywhere. And I mean, Samuel L. Jackson? He's so talented. How do you mess that up? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't. Why did he? I, I feel confused, bad for him that, that someone who has been a staple of a fun kind of Easter egg element of the Marvel Universe all of these years, after all this time, you think it would finally be really fun to have something with him in the lead role. And it's just such a colossal misfire. Yeah, I think the AV Club gave episode six, the final episode, an F. Yep. Yeah, and they've been docking at some points all season because one of the other scandals around this that is just poor timing in some ways is the opening credit sequence is generated by AI, like mid-journey style. So, you know, that's not a great vibe. Uh, But that is not why people hate the show. That is just a sideshow to the reason people hate the show, which is that it's not very good. And, And to the Barbenheimer point... 
we are sick of superheroes. Look at the superhero track record this year from Ant-Man to The Flash and now Secret Invasion. Is this a blip or is this it? Is it just over? I am not sure if it's that the content is superheroes and we think superheroes are bad. I think part of it is just that every time one of these movies comes out, the early reviews are bad, word of mouth is bad, and they don't really get any traction on socials as being anything more than, you know, maybe a punchline. And so people don't want to go see Shazam 2. It's not because, you know, we think that there aren't any good superhero stories left. I think they have been overplayed and oversaturated the market. But I think it's also just that these ones are bad. A wild hot take. It might just be that these ones are bad. And I think I there's mean, there's some truth to that. Well, people are going to there. We're going to have this phase now, right, where um, every Mattel product and many other toys, too, are going to become films. Right. And is it that this was the genius idea to make uh, toys into movies? No, it's that this one was really good. So people want to watch it and also really well marketed. But the product is good. Yeah, and I, I you know, there's a, a, a somewhat interesting uh, episode of The Town, Matt Baloney's podcast, where he interviews, uh, like, the head of marketing from Warner Brothers, who who he talks like he's the head of marketing at Warner Brothers. So it's a bit long as, as a 30-minute conversation. But the overall uh, gist of, hey, how did you know that Barbie was going to become a sensation? And part of the answer is, we didn't. And then part of the answer is, well, we saw this crazy script from Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, and Mattel said, we're going to let them do it. And we went, okay, if it's going to be subversive and kind of unexpected, we're going to lean in so hard to that. And that's where... Uh, you know, to he, uh, this uh, guy's credit, whose name I will blank on because he is a, a suit from Warner Brothers. Uh, he, he, their team uh, is came up with that kind of iconic now first Barbie trailer that spoofed the beginning of Space Odyssey, the the moment of the monolith of Barbie, and that. Apparently not a Greta Gerwig idea. That was a Warner marketing idea that was very controversial, according to this interview, but I think was part of laying this groundwork for, no, you think you know what a Barbie movie will be, but this Barbie movie is different. And you have attached Greta Gerwig, who, if you are a more indie movie or artsy movie person, your ears kind of peek up, you know? You're like, that's like if you told me Wes Anderson is doing the Transformers movie. God, I would kill to see Wes Anderson do a Transformers movie. I would. I mean, I would see a Transformers movie if Wes Anderson made it. But, yes, um, if Wes Anderson made it. That, I think the difference here is people just had an idea of either this one's going to be good, this is not going to be your standard IP play because Greta Gerwig is not your standard IP play director. She is not a Michael Bay. She is not a Steven Spielberg who, for all his amazing work, for the Fablemans of the world, also is just kind of an IP rehasher at this point with the indie movies, which didn't do great. Uh, yeah, that, that one was disappointing box office numbers as well um so right it's not just the superhero movies it's it's a even mission impossible uh you know underperformed at the box office uh despite the fact that last year top gun did really well i mean i think part of that was <laughs> top gun was really good yeah. i know that i sound like a broken record uh but i i do think that when we think about ip we have to think about the, the IP for Oppenheimer is not American Prometheus, which, okay, literally it's American Prometheus, the, the, the biography. But the p reason people went to see it is Christopher Nolan. He yeah. is the draw there. And I think that the IP, meaning the big marketing push for Barbie is Margot Robbie. It's Greta Gerwig. And for some of us, it's Noah too. But really, I think it's those two. Um, that is why people came to see it. And Gosling. Oh, yeah. Gosling. Absolutely. He's great. And, now there's, and he there's, does great. Yeah. Well, I say, yeah, as if I've had a chance to see it. And eventually, I will when tickets become available in the world. Uh, but that's fine, because in the meantime, there's plenty for me to stream, bringing us to another sweet piece of follow-up. Uh, this one, we've mentioned so many shows disappearing from the streaming universe recently. And here's one that I did not have a chance to stream, but perhaps I'm getting a second chance. I'm talking, of course, about Paramount Plus's 
Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, a show that was on Paramount Plus for about seven weeks before they erased it from existence. And I bring that up because if you were regretting your missing of the Rise of the Pink Ladies, I just know so many of our listeners went, no, it was on my back catalog, I'm sure. Well, now you can get it on DVD, baby. This is encouraging if it becomes a trend for all these shows that get canceled before, you know, anyone gets to really establish a following. Yeah, I actually, I bring this up because I think it is good news that the streamers and the the networks essentially have realized, you know, there's some old tricks in the book that still work in terms of making money. And so much of the strike right now is a showdown between two sides that say, I'm not making enough money. The actors and the writers on one side, and then the studios on the other side saying, no, no, I am not making enough money. Okay, well, why don't you go back to what used to work? For example, if a show isn't a hit on your network and you cancel it, there's still a fan base that will pay you money for it, just directly to you for the product. What a wild idea. Uh, And while I think DVDs are kind of a goofy example, I'm surprised that they're spending the effort and the actual money to print DVDs of Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies. The, you know, video on demand, download, the the just buy the episodes on Amazon or whatever option, which they're doing with this show as well. Why not? There's almost no cost to doing that. You already have the digital content created. All you have to do is upload it to Amazon and give them a cut of the sale. But it's still more money for you, Paramount, and then, depending on how we negotiate these contracts, more money for the actors and the creators, even if the show was a flop. Yeah. I mean, I would also say advice for viewers, if there is a show that you love and DVDs are available, buy it, because who knows if things will stay on streaming in this climate. I mean, I remember people telling me that they had gotten rid of their office DVDs because they could now just watch it on Netflix. (laughs) 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 I mean, it's still streaming, of course. I don't think we'll reach a day when one cannot stream the office anywhere. But, you know, uh, having to switch services for a single show is a a big burden if you want to rewatch something. Go get the physical media. Or the digital media, you know. Right, and own it. Go get a DVD player first, then get the DVD media, or just download the episodes legally so someone gets paid. Yeah, I I think that works, too. Why not? Uh, But, you know, that's not the only news touching on money and strikes and what does this all mean for everyone that I saw this week, which means it's time to transition into a, a new story from our friends at... Streamberry, uh, where they have officially invented the computer, apparently, because I found an article this week pointing to a product manager job listing at Netflix for their machine learning platform, a job that pays between $300,000 and $900,000 a year to develop the future of AI and ML at Netflix. Boy, what a great time to post that job with that salary range, Netflix. Yeah, uh, as could have been predicted, people were pretty upset about this. Um, it does show that Netflix thinks that this is where the future of streaming profit is. Yeah, the the job description is actually quite boring and mundane in a lot of ways and ultra vague. So who knows what they actually want to do with the person in this job. Uh, but it is just, again, another moment highlighting that the stakes around AI and that that area have just ramped up so quickly this year. I don't think anyone on either side of the strike negotiations expected that to be a major sticking point, uh, let alone literally something that sent SAG on strike, uh, perhaps right. more than almost any other negotiation point. Uh, a year ago. Nobody would have expected that a year ago. And yet here we are. We're not just is that a real sticking point in a strike that some sources, according to uh, Kara Swisher on one of her many podcasts, think that will go until January. There are studio sources that say they think this is going until January, which is wild because that destroys not just their fall and spring TV slates, but the entire 2024 movie slate. 
Oh, and that's going to be really hard on a lot of working people just all around. That's really awful news. I, I hope that that's not the case and they can come to a resolution before that. Um, though, of course, I, I support, you know, and stand in solidarity with the striking workers. But wow, that would be rough. It reads like saber rattling to me. You you tell a, yeah. a, a well-placed source in the press that you're willing to go all the way, but you're not really willing to go all the way because, again, you do need to release something in 2024 if you, a publicly traded company, are going to report any profit in 2024. It, it's dicey for, you know, the Disneys and Comcasts of the world to play chicken like that. I think part of the reason that the issue of AI has blown up as much as it has in these negotiations gets at a bigger issue um, within these streaming negotiations, which is transparency. I think that there's just been a lack of transparency from Netflix and all the streamers, really, about how they intend to use AI. Are they using it for uh, development? Like, are they trying to replace writers? Are they trying to replace actors? Is this something that would replace executives? Is this just some sort of other support function um, that deals with, uh, like, predictive models for uh, how we'll know how well a show will do in a certain market, you know? Uh, the more I think that they are willing to divulge about what this is, I think the sooner we could come to some kind of conclusion. Yeah, and and I, you know, I think it's a good point uh, to say it might not be about putting uh, artists out of work necessarily. It might be about no. putting executives or middle management out of work. And as a, a company, you probably don't want to broadcast that either. In, in particular, in the middle of a strike, do you want to also piss off the people who are on your side? Not necessarily. So I, I can understand the defensive nature of not wanting to commit, but the whole point of the, the organized labor in this situation is they kind of need you to make some commitments. Well, and at the same time, as soon as you announce what your plan is, they're going to try and uh, counter with what their requirements are for that, right? And what they want to be paid. So if your hope is to get ahead of the technology and disrupt the market, uh, that's going to be harder to do if you've announced what your plan is. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's many, many angles there. Uh, but focusing on Netflix, uh, all of this uh, kind of came together in a, a constellation of stories this week that made me wonder, is, is Netflix... Uh, actually the strongest streamer right now in the strike. There's a lot of talk around how Netflix is basically the only profitable streamer, how Netflix is best positioned to weather the strike because they have so many international productions and such an international focus. Squid Game, huge hit globally, doesn't have anything to do with SAG-AFTRA or the WGA. Uh, but on the flip side, there were some other Netflix headlines that made me think maybe they're not in such a great position. For example, Netflix just had their uh, earnings call, and there was a mix of good and weird news in there. For example, uh, subscriber numbers are up thanks to the password sharing crackdown. But for the UCAN region, US and Canada, the revenue is down because too many people were booted off the uh, plans that they were on and then signed up for the cheap, basic ad-free plan. So they didn't actually wind up watching the ads. And so what did Netflix turn around and do all of a sudden, seemingly? They just got rid of the $9.99 ad-free plan. We would rather you watch the ad plan or pay $15 a month for the plan that you probably used to share with your parents and got booted off of. And I think we're going to see more and more of the streamers kind of get rid of the idea of a low-cost ad-free plan and replace it with low-cost with ads or high-cost with no ads or perhaps even, like, low-cost with less ads. Uh, I just don't think we're going to continue to see the, like, oh, $10, $11, $12 for ad-free little upsell on many of them. Uh, and, and it makes me wonder, did Netflix do the password-sharing crackdown too well? Ooh, that's an interesting provocation. I mean, perhaps, right? That if revenue is down, they also warned on this call that next quarter uh, their numbers may be low um, in terms of growth. Uh, so it seems like they're trying to avoid another Netflix correction like we saw last year. Um, and, you know, being very ginger <laughs> with the markets here. Um, but... They still seem to be making money. And I do wonder how much this is Netflix being strategic, not just um, 
with investors, but also with their workers who are striking right now. I don't think it behooves them to come out and say, look how much money we're making in this moment, uh, while they're, like you were saying earlier, telling all these workers we're not making enough money. Yeah, it's a good point. You kind of want to walk a fine line underplaying your success a little bit right now so that it doesn't bite you in the ass in the negotiations. That's actually a really smart point there. Uh, The other headline I saw that made me question Netflix's, let's say, resiliency through the strike Mm. uh, comes from Variety. And then the nugget here is that the Netflix originals that are being produced overseas, where they are hoping for both Uh, in-market success. So, for example, you make a show in Japan, you want it to be successful in Japan. And then, you know, they're playing the game of numbers where they go, well, if we make a bunch of in-market shows in Japan and South Korea and Germany and Spain and France, some of them will cross borders. Some of them will become a squid game or maybe a squid game light with uh, cross-country, cross-language, global appeal. And what they're finding is that that has so far only really been true of the U.S. and South Korea and has not really proven to be true in almost any other market where they're doing this. Uh, A smattering of numbers here that I thought were interesting. In the United States, which you can kind of take as a baseline, local titles are 61% of the titles people watch. So, you know, a little over half of the titles people watch in the U.S. were made in the U.S. That, That tracks to me. Uh, The high watermark for that kind of local content is South Korea, where uh, nearly 70% of the titles watched were produced locally in South Korea. From there, the next numbers are uh, Japan, less than 20% of the, the Japanese content is watched by Japanese viewers. Then we get down to Spain, where it's less than 15%. Germany is less than 3%. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. those Some of those numbers, in particular for the European countries, startlingly low. And the the analysis here uh, from Tyler, uh, uh, I never get his name right. He writes the VIP Plus column in Variety. Uh, it, link is in the show notes, of course. Uh, Tyler uh, makes the argument that I think is compelling that a lot of those countries, they just want to watch Western content. And a lot of those Western European countries have been raised on Western movies and TV, on American movies and TV. And so there's already a built-in habit and demand and appetite for that. And they're not as interested in the Netflix originals produced in their own market that maybe don't have recognizable stars, maybe don't have recognizable, you know, IP. Mm. And so how can Netflix adjust their strategy going forward to account for that? I mean, you... You can't predict a squid game. I mean, I know they're in the business of predicting what's going to be a squid game. And maybe they're coming up with the AI right now that can do it. But it seems like that would introduce a level of volatility. Yeah, to me, it was just you can't even get to a squid game if you can't get a substantial number of people in the country that the the show was made in and the language it's in to, to be interested Uh, I I feel like it is way more uphill to say, uh, you know, German show that only 2.7% of German audiences have watched is suddenly going to blow up in the U.S. It's possible, but that that is a really less likely route to success. Yeah, I wonder if they'll then start scaling back operations in some of those Western European countries. Some of them, there are incentives to be there. France, for example, really demands that you make some in-country stuff. So it's never going to completely go away in markets where it's required. But it does make you wonder, you know, that uh, when Squid Game was such a hit, everyone pointed to this as both the future of Netflix, but perhaps the future of a lot of the global streamers to say you need to make a hit that is going to cross borders and perhaps it's originated outside your borders. And, oh, there are so many countries, so many emerging markets, so many opportunities. But if you look at the data for Netflix, it turns out there's like one market. It's South Korea. And Maybe Japan, but it's a, less than a third of the, the numbers, relatively speaking. So that that's a, a real distant second place. Uh, it reminds me of Amazon, who loves to tell us that Citadel is a hit in India. And Citadel's not originally an Indian production. I, I wonder if the story would actually be more compelling if Citadel had been an Indian show with an Indian creator and an Indian team instead of the Russo brothers. 
maybe then that would have crossed back more interestingly. But, you know, Citadel is not successful. So to say, yeah, but it's big in India, but it's not. It's not big anywhere. If it was big in India, then it might have a chance of being a success somewhere else. But but it's not. And it turns out it's a lot harder than we thought. (laughs) (laughs) A lot harder. Uh, You can't. There's no. um, What did Netflix say they wanted? A Wednesday. There's a Wednesday in every week. Uh, No. no. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. That would be a blast. There'd be so much great content. Yeah. I mean, I do think if you have your first German squid game come there, that could generate more interest in other German films or other German Netflix shows, you know, but I don't know. Yeah, I I, I don't know either. This is one that left me more as a head scratcher than anything else. And and my takeaway again is, is Netflix best positioned for the coming uh, winter of, of the streaming universe? Or are they actually on particularly shaky ground where they are profitable, but it is not a sure thing? And we know from the Netflix correction uh, back in spring of 2022 that the market can turn uh, very sour on Netflix very fast. Yeah. And again, that that really was at top of my mind when I was listening to the or reading reports about that recent earnings call, just that they seem cautious in a way that doesn't feel particularly Netflix. Cautious and Netflix, two words I rarely would put together. Netflix, the company that went, were murdering DVDs and naming them Quickster at the same time. That is not <laughs> not a group known for their caution. And yet... But that is enough mystery and questions about the streaming universe, because we also watched some shows in the streaming universe this week. And we're going to begin with one that, yes, you can watch on Netflix. It's called The Lincoln Lawyer. Diane, you are a fan of The Lincoln Lawyer. You challenged me to watch this show. It's now in its second season on Netflix. I watched just the pilot, so only some real light spoilers for the pilot here. Uh, But Diane, what do you love about The Lincoln Lawyer? Uh, I love the cases. I think it's a fun mystery to figure out. And the cast is very charming. Yeah, can I tell you, my my big takeaway about 15 minutes into the uh, pilot episode was these actors are all charming and very enjoyable, and I recognize almost none of them. And it instantly reminded me of Suits, the USA show that uh, similarly had a vibe of charming legal procedural with very pretty actors you don't really recognize until you've watched 100 episodes of Suits. Uh, and then I also just kind of took note of the fact that Netflix just got the rights for Suits and is really pushing Suits on the home screen, almost as if they saw the success of The Lincoln Lawyer and went, what are some Lincoln Lawyer-ish shows we could add to the catalog? That's so funny. To me, I, I do see the the Suits anal- analog there. It also really reminds me of uh, The Good Wife and where it goes in the sense that it's structured with um, uh like season long arches and then sort of individual cases of the week. Uh, And because there are, because of the way it handles intrigue around the main characters, uh, I think that it's just like similar story beats. I would guess that they like even looked at those scripts sometimes as like um, structural guideposts. Yeah. Yeah, and and I do, I I can, from one episode, sense that dual kind of structure of there's a season-long arc that I assume is about the tech billionaire being accused of murdering his wife and his wife's lover. Mm -hmm. And then there's the individual Case of the Week episode, which in the pilot introduces us to Izzy, who is going to become uh, the driver of the Lincoln. And the Lincoln of the Lincoln lawyer, to be clear, is a car. It's a Lincoln car. And it's not a nice, fancy new Lincoln. It's an old retro Lincoln, because he's the Lincoln lawyer. He lawyers out of his Lincoln. That's that's what it means. I, when I was re-watching this, I was like, oh my god, there is so much product placement. So much. The scene where he goes into the garage full of uh, snazzy new Lincolns, and the camera lingers on each snazzy new Lincoln before he picks the retro classic. Uh, but of course, he needs someone to drive him around in his Lincoln, and so the first case of the week is him finding his driver by getting her acquitted of a petty theft. 
Right. Uh, a lot of the uh, intros of the characters on this show feel like a little abrupt to me, which is why I don't think the pilot is the best episode of it. And you really get the sense. And then this has come from a series of books <laughs> because like they decided where we'd be in the story, which is not really the beginning of the Lincoln lawyer's story. He's already got two ex-wives who he's still in contact with. Um so there are a lot of moments where it was like character development and eh, we'll yeah. get to it when we have time. But let's hear about this case. Yeah, which honestly I like because I I don't I, I get there. there's some real obvious tropes in some of the character development here. Oh, yeah. And he is in recovery. We, it's supposed to be, why aren't you taking cases right now? Well, we immediately find out, like, he, he got in a surfing accident, and which is just funny. I'm sorry, it's just funny. It's so ridiculous. Uh, but, but from that, got a very serious painkiller addiction. Uh, and is now in recovery. And then they ham fist in that uh, Izzy, his first client and his first new character, is also in recovery. And that is just enough for them to bond. And that is where I agree with you. Like some of those those moments, like he's meeting her and they're having a serious conversation outside the courthouse. And it's just filmed and framed in a way where where you go, wait, is she a main character? I just met her two seconds ago. But they they're framing this and filming her like she's a main character. And then... 40 minutes later, she's a main character. And you're like, oh, she's a main character the whole time. Okay, we're just throwing in some, like, instant uh, ingredients here. It's kind of like a cup of ramen. We're adding the hot water. It's coming to life. And then the show will continue on in a more kind of procedural format from here. So I can see how maybe the pilot's not the best episode, but I appreciated that they didn't waste time being like, well, you got to understand the backstory of Izzy so that you can feel like she makes sense as a main character. I'm like, no, 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 you're right. Just give me the case of the week and then be like, oh, surprise, she's a main character. I know you're not going to do that every week. Not every case of the week is going to surprise drop a main character into the show. It's the pilot. Cool. Right. And in a way that is similar to me to The Good Wife, there are the uh, like sort of supporting characters who become um, like regulars, like Dylan Baker's character was on that show, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you like have your sort of villains of the week who then, you know, pop up season to season. But mostly it's about the, this set of main characters. Um, I do think it was a good call that they changed from in the movie. I think it was Matthew McConaughey. They made Mickey Holler uh, Mexican-American. Um, they've introduced Izzy Letts, who is his driver character. You mentioned um, she is black and queer on the show. So I think Netflix did seem to say like, oh, we don't want to just have this show about another troubled white dude. Uh, we can, you know, make it a little bit more diverse, but still in a very USA Network kind of way. Yeah, they, they fed the prompt into the computer, and the computer came <laughs> back and said, you just need to change these three things. And suddenly it's much more interesting than Matthew McConaughey is the Lincoln lawyer. Because that is also just a pitching me on a car ad again. And this show does a good job of only occasionally turning into a car ad. There are some episodes deep in season one where it is very car ad heavy. (laughs) I'm fine with that. All these studios say they need to make money. Great. Just give me the Coca-Cola law clerk. Give me PepsiCo's police. Fine. Fine. All the product placement. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, if the cases are good, I will watch the next episode and stay up later than I should being like, but who did it? But you are uh, keeping up on The Lincoln Lawyer. I have to say, I I, uh, bled into episode two because like all good Netflix shows, every episode ends with a completely inconsequential cliffhanger, it seems. Again, that was just the end of the pilot. But the pilot literally ends with Izzy turning to Mickey in the car and going, we're being followed. Cut to credits. So, of course, you're going to watch the beginning of the next episode. And in the beginning of the next episode, it's completely irrelevant that they were being followed, and they move on from that immediately. Uh, But that is, of course, how you make a Netflix show, a binge model show. Uh, So I I was binged enough, hooked enough to go into episode two. And I could imagine keeping this on in the background. This is some good background fare. Uh, But I'm curious, Diane, is season two holding up? 
Yes. So the first episode of season two is one is the worst episode of the show, in my opinion, that's come out so far. And I was a little like, oh, no. But then they make a big pivot in season two, episode two. So I watched the first five of episode two, which are the ones that are out so far. They're doing another five episode drop in August. So, uh, yes, I think that where episode two or where season two goes is better than season one, especially because we don't have to do these sort of awkward character introductions anymore. They're like becoming more and more human all the time. Um, But uh, we'll see. We'll see if they can keep it up for the second half. Interesting. That is an intriguing pitch to me. You had only told me that you really disliked the premiere of season two and I was worried that that meant this was a one and done kind of situation but no no I'm encouraged I could see myself continuing all the way into season two and I want to give a shout out for my preferred binge model which is the split binge I like that Netflix is doing this I'm not a big binge fan in general I think many listeners know that at this point so the five now five later I like it that that is a choice that I can get behind Yeah, as long as I've got at least three at a time, I'm in. I like that rule of thumb. At least three at a time, and I'm good to go. And you know, if you're looking for another show to binge, I've got one where you can definitely binge more than three at a time because it's in its second season, and it's the second show in our summer show swap. I'm talking, of course, about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, one of the many, many Star Trek shows that airs on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, Diane, I had mentioned this last week because I watched an absolutely charming season two episode about our good friend Spock, the half-human, half-Vulcan, half-Leonard Nimoy ghost that we all know and love. We, we are on, I think, our third actor playing Spock in the history of Star Trek. Um, but this episode, forget what, what you know or think about Spock. Uh, I, I brought it to you because it's kind of just an old-fashioned drawing room comedy. Yeah, and I really was delighted by it. I mean, I am a sucker for this format. Uh, I will say I'm not like the biggest Star Trek person. I like all the Star Trek I've seen, but I haven't seen that much Star Trek. Um, But you don't have to have seen that much Star Trek to know Spock. I mean, he's He's Spock. Yeah, he's a major cultural icon. So uh, I, I was on board. I didn't know that, for example, that Spock was half human. Yeah, and, and, you know, if you don't know that, it doesn't really matter because they just tell you that in this episode. It's a very, like, hold-your-hand yeah. episode. Uh, the episode in question is Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 2, Episode 5, Charades. So, spoiler alert for that one specific episode. And if you're just looking for, like, a sample of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, uh, this is the one I would give you as your uh, sampler platter. It does not rely on knowledge of what's going on in the overall season or in the character backstories, anything you need to know, I feel like they tell you. Spock has got to go impress his in-laws. That's the plot. Yeah, and um, it was really engaging. I thought it was very funny. I like some of the new versions of old characters, I guess. I was going to say, uh, what's the nurse's last name? Chapel. Nurse Chapel. Uh, we get to see a young version of Nurse Chapel. I really liked her. Um and, you know, Ethan Peck as Spock is both good and handsome, which never hurts. Uh, uh, yeah, just really easy to watch. And I was surprised at how little backstory I felt I needed because I didn't really know anything else about um, this new captain uh, or really what they're doing. In ter- they're just going on little adventures. And that is exactly what I love about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, is that it's mostly a show about them going on little adventures. It is the Star Trek that they kind of pitched as, what if we channel the vibe of the original series, which was very much campy, adventure-based, story of the week. We're just some some kind of space explorers running into fun, sexy adventures on goofy planets. That was the original series. 
Uh, and of course, Star Trek has gone through many different guises in the years since. I, I'm personally a, a huge fan of the Next Generation era. I was raised on that. And the Next Generation, similarly, uh, they are very explorer-focused. And many of the, the episodes are simple little morality tales or one-act plays. And uh, Strange New Worlds really achieves that vibe uh, on many of its outings, although there are some more season-long or character-long arcs. Uh, the big one, you mentioned the, the new captain, who is in fact the oldest captain, because uh, if you are even loosely aware of some of the original series of Star Trek, you might know the original pilot had a different captain that was not Kirk. Uh, the original captain, Christopher Pike, uh, that actor was just replaced, uh, and so they killed off Christopher Pike in between the original pilot and the first episode with Kirk. And so at some point they went, what if we did a prequel with Pike? What if we did the Enterprise before Kirk? And the the gimmick there that gives the show some weight from time to time, some character weight, is that we know Pike is going to die. And so they decided, and I think this was smart, to tell Pike he's going to die. And the, the genesis of the show is a spinoff from another Star Trek uh, discovery where Pike sees a vision of his own death. And he knows how he will die about a decade in the future. And the series begins with him, uh, you know, questioning all of his choices and thinking maybe he should quit and maybe he should avoid that fate. And of course, no, you have to embrace your fate and live life to the fullest and all of those good vibe morality tales that you're going to experience on the road there. Will he change the future? Will he not? You know, that tone gives it some, some gravitas for him but then kind of allows them to let go of any concerns about, oh, the, the, the timeline of Star Trek and the consequences of retconning and all of these things that uh, can really ruin it if you are not into the franchise. Yeah, I did have a question about that regarding tone in that the episode that I watched is very much like adventure rom-com. But I understand like knowing a little bit about Star Trek that they do sometimes go to a more dramatic place. Um, I mean, still within the framing of these like space adventures. But like, would you say overall um, charades is a good example of the tone of the series? Uh, in a lot of ways, yes. I think what I've enjoyed about Paramount's strategy with Star Trek that I think is working very well for Star Trek and less well for Marvel and Star Wars over at Disney is that each Star Trek series that's currently on has its own lane, its own tone. And, mm -hmm. you know, Charades is at the lightest end of Strange New Worlds. They are not all rom-coms, but each season so far has had a Spock rom-com episode. There is one in season one as well. And uh, this season has also had a like legal procedural episode when they have to defend the commander of the ship, uh, number one, Una, from uh, a court-martial. Okay, that's also in the same kind of uh, exploring, but exploring the humanity side of things or exploring the, you know, duty side of things. Uh, and that is the tone of Strange New Worlds. It, it can exist in this kind of um, a spectrum that is kind of capped on the two ends, let's say, versus Discovery, which uh, Strange New Worlds spun off of. Discovery is very dark and cinematic and serious and kind of melodramatic at times. And then on the way other side, you have the current animated series, uh, Star Trek Lower Decks, which I love. And Star Trek Lower Decks is much more uh, jokes, fan service, references. It's the fun Star Trek for people who like Star Trek but are a little exhausted by the darkness on the other end of the spectrum with Discovery and also Picard, which brought back a lot of fan service but also had a darker story to it. And kind of the darkness of, like, watching Jean-Luc Picard be really old and going, oh, this is the last outing for that that cast and that story. So there, mm -hmm. there is this range of tones, but they have done a decent job of saying, each show, this is your general vibe. And I, I would say Strange New Worlds has the widest range of vibe to it. 
Uh, this past uh, week, they had an episode that brought in a crossover from the animated series Lower Decks. And that one, I do think you need to uh, uh, at least have seen Lower Decks to really enjoy what they're doing there. But they successfully took cartoon characters and had the actors, Jack Quaid and Tawny Newsom, play them in reality. And most of the episode is them in reality. And uh, they, you know, they're time traveling from the future. And the plot is a kind of madcap comedy about making sure they don't destroy the past. And also, it's the, you know, the Enterprise. So everyone knows these people. There's a holiday for Captain Pike in the future, we find out. And so, of course, they're also starstruck being in front of Pike and Spock and Uhura. And so it's funny, but also has this tone of, if you screw up, you'll never exist. And finds a way to link that into the overall uh, kind of Pike story of he's a dark, broody man because he knows he's going to die. And these visitors from the future who idolize him teach him a lesson about, like, joie de vivre and, and celebrating every day. It's this kind of show that can thread a needle like that, that I, I you know, a few years ago, if you were like, yeah, there's going to be this, like, cartoon Star Trek, and there's going to be this retro Star Trek, and there's going to be this, like, serious Star Trek, I would have said, stop. Stop right now. Too many Star Treks. And yet, here we are. Yeah, I mean, and I do think Disney take note at this strategy because they do, that does feel very different. Whereas with a Marvel show, they all kind of feel like a Marvel show. Um, and I think that I'm personally less interested in the more broody Star Treks. But knowing that I could dive into something like this, this is definitely a show that I would I would turn on. Yeah, and like I, I, I would, I would keep watching. And and just to bring it back to the the Marvel comparison one more time, and I, I think this also applies somewhat to the Star Wars shows. Uh, yeah, you know, Star Trek is always intended to be a multi season show. They don't do the like one off miniseries. The, Picard sort of initially began as a one off miniseries, but even that turned into a three season show. And the benefit there is you have time to build and establish a tone and mature it and differentiate it and explore it. And that's what Strange New Worlds has been doing. Lower Decks is moving into its fourth season next month. They have absolutely nailed what their tone is. Uh, and Discovery is wrapping up its final season this year. And, you know, while I'm not a big fan of Discovery, they have figured out what their tone is. And there are people who love that show. Compare that to the Marvel style of shows where almost nothing gets a second season. Or if they do get a second season, it is a years later. When will Loki season two come out? Who knows? Who cares know. anymore? I'm bored with it. I really like Loki, but I think that it worked for me because it had a different tone than the other Marvel shows. Yeah, and I, I think that you need to lean into this is the tone of Loki. And there's more Loki in that tone for you if you like the tone of Loki. Instead of this kind of rapid fire they've been doing of here's the tone of She-Hulk. Goodbye, She-Hulk. Here's the tone of Ms. Marvel. Goodbye, Ms. Marvel. Here's the tone of Secret Invasion. Yeah. Farewell, Secret Invasion. And, unfortunately, farewell to you, dear listener, because we have to wrap it up there at the end of our first ever Summer Show Swap. That sounds very serious. Thank you. I didn't have a sound effect, so I just went for it. If you, <gasps> listeners, are swapping your own summer shows, tell us about them. Podcast at streamageddon.com. We'll check them out. Uh, but we have other shows, full shows to check out again, because the late summer streaming season is kicking off with some really exciting content. Minx Season 2, How To With John Wilson, many more shows coming back that we could not be more excited about, so stay tuned. And as always, keep, keep streaming. streaming. I would have said stop. Stop right now. Too many Star Treks.